0: I'm Jana Marin, and you're listening to Season 3 of More to the Story, the podcast that's all about creative nonfiction and the power of sharing your personal story.
1: Tell me a story, tell me true, I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue, tell me a story and I'll I'll tell mine to you.
0: Welcome to More to the Story Season 3, Episode 2. The show all about something near and dear to my heart, telling true stories without shame and sharing them with the world. In addition to this podcast, I also publish a literary magazine called Under the Gum Tree, dedicated to creative nonfiction and visual art. The magazine is published quarterly in digital and print. If you enjoy the readings on this show, I encourage you to check out the complete stories by purchasing a single issue or getting a subscription. Your purchase directly supports the work of the artists and writers we publish. Digital subscriptions are $20 a year and print subscriptions are $80 a year. All that info is online at underthegumtree.com. You can also find out about my work as a book editor and coach for nonfiction authors at jannamarlise.com. On today's episode of More to the Story, I'm joined by Jamie Chesbro. Jamie is the author of A Lion in the Snow, Essays on a Father's Journey Home. His work has appeared in The Writer's Chronicle, America, The Washington Post, The Millions, Essay Daily, and The Huffington Post. Essays from A Lion in the Snow were chosen as notable selections five different years in the Best American Essay Series, as well as the Best American Sports Writing 2014. His essay on propriety, which is in his book, A Lion in the Snow, appears in issue 19 of Under the Gum Tree*, published April 2016. Jamie and I spoke at AWP in Portland in March 2019. Before we get to the interview, here is Jamie reading Before the Noise of Dawn. This essay was originally published as Why I Wake Before the Children in the Washington Post
2: before the noise of dawn. Every morning I tried to rise before our three children so I can drink coffee by myself in the dark. I fell out of this practice over the holidays, opting instead for the warmth under the comforter while the wind rattled the frosted window panes. But when we returned to our morning routine in the new year, our eight-year-old protested dressing for school. Our five-year-old could not believe it was no longer the weekend, and our four-year-old turned her nose up at the breakfast foods we had in the house. I didn't have any patience for them. I was a grouch. Waking before the children seems so counterintuitive to the notion that more sleep is better for me than caffeine and silence, but it's not. Getting up before the children gives me the opportunity to orient myself before the chaotic morning push out the door. Drinking coffee in the quiet helps me to set my daily agenda, to think about the day ahead before it's no longer mine to determine. After returning to my morning ritual, I began recalling its origin. When our middle daughter, Mary, was seven months old, I woke when she did and gave her a bottle, which she cried for immediately upon waking. We were weaning her off feeding during the night. One morning I was so surprised to wake before her, I made the choice to rise. The noise of dawn had yet to begin. I tiptoed downstairs and winced at the coffee maker rumbling against the counter. As the second child, Mary was born into the action of family. If noise roused her from sleep, she thought she was missing a party and howled. In the living room, I sat on the couch and held black coffee up to my face in the dark. My eyes adjusted to the glow of the streetlight creeping through the bay window, and my father rose out of memory with the steam of the coffee. I could hear his voice boast, "'Best part of the day. I suppose that doesn't place a lot of hope in the remaining hours,' but I know what he means now. A sleeping house is quiet. As a child, lying in my bed, I'd hear him bang the plastic plastic filter holder against the counter. Water climbed through the pipes to splash on itself in the sink. He woke so early he didn't fear company. My mornings alone give me time to wonder, though, as he waited for the black liquid to drip into the pot. What brewed in his mind? Did he ever consider that time prayerful, or did he simply make to-do lists in his head? I asked because the morning I rose before Mary, I felt the confluence of my roles, the conflation of being both his son and my children's father. I imagined my late father seated across from me at a diner. After he moved out when I was in high school, we often spent time together by going out to eat. We read menus. We pulled one corner of our mouths up to acknowledge that we knew the other was tired, as if to say, it's nice not having to talk, isn't it? If I didn't get up before Mary, I wouldn't have been thinking about how much I have missed being my father's son, how much I have wanted to be in his presence once again and sense without having to explain it that he understands my exhaustion. I remember how Mary's cry ripped through the stillness that morning. She cried until she felt the bottle on her lips. She sucked with her eyes closed as we rocked in the chair. Her head was warm and smelled like baby shampoo and the coffee on my breath. I didn't throw my head back and close my eyes, lamenting lost sleep. I wasn't trying to assess what the day ahead would be like. She sighed as she gulped, inhaled and exhaled through her nose. Because I had awakened before Mary and, and come to a greater awareness of my own desires, I was more attuned to hers. I told her what sons and daughters want to hear from their parents. Her chest expanded and released against my own chest and forearm. I'm here, Mary, I said. I'm here. I don't always think about my dad or have epiphanies in the morning when I'm up before the children. But when they do eventually stir from their beds, I'm already awake. When they step slowly down the stairs, their small palms sliding along the railing, I'm more ready to be their
0: father. Thank you, Jamie, and welcome to More to the Story.
2: Thanks for having me, Jana.
0: Yeah, it's so great to be here at AWP and get to do these in person with someone right across the table from me. It's such a treat. So (laughs) I appreciate that you took the time out of your schedule to make time for this. Thanks for having me. Um, I always love to start with just tell us a little bit about your writing background and in particular, what draws you to creative nonfiction.
2: Mm. I've always sort of been a journaler and tried to make sense of things privately on the page. And so when I wanted to write more seriously for an audience, essays were a really uh, natural genre for me to work in.
0: And do you have, like, did you go to school for writing? Like what's your kind of background in coming to becoming like comfortable with the craft and finding places to publish and finding an audience?
2: Right, I did my MFA in Fairfield University's low res program. Um, and like most MFA students, um, I, I really grew to appreciate the craft of writing and the process and, and all of that.
0: Mm-hmm. So you've really been a writer in some form, sounds like, from a very young age.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess if you consider journaling yeah, being a writer, um, yeah. uh, maybe like a private writer. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. What made you drawn to wanting to become a public writer?
2: Well, in my late 20s, early 30s, when I became married and started having children, I was really surprised at how much those roles made me think of my own father, which seems pretty obvious to probably most people looking back <laughs> on that. Um, but to me, it was like really surprising. And there's lots of really great books out there about you know mourning the loss of a parent, a lot of great you know, books about fathers, but I I didn't really find any books about, or didn't read any books, sort of mourning loss, and then trying to figure out how to keep children alive (laughs) at the same time. Uh, and those sort of intersecting dualities and roles and identities.
0: Which you hint at a little bit in the piece you read. So talk a little bit about that piece and what was the impetus for it and how it came together for you.
2: Yeah. You know, I chose to read it um because of its size. <laughs> it sure. works for the for the pod. But I also chose to read it because it's a good representation of the book in in the confluence of the two roles and the in the conflation of feeling both like a, a son and, and a father, often sometimes, you know, in the same moments. <laughs> and and that's largely what, what my first book's about. Mm-hmm. Um the those intersecting roles.
0: Mhm. Did your father die before you had kids?
2: Yes. My father died five years before my son was born.
0: Okay. So what I'm getting from the piece you read, and it sounds like the book also really gets at you becoming a father is a way for you to learn and understand more about him even once he's passed.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: And that happened for you with your first born I'm assuming yes yeah what was what was that moment like that or like maybe one of your first or earliest memories or experiences with this kind of like realization
2: I have to say um, there's a piece in the book uh, called trains and from the standpoint of a singular concrete object just sort of carrying with it the weight of so many memories and evocative emotions and and uh, recollections um i had a lot of stuff stirring up just having a son but when he became the age where he could enjoy playing with you know toy trains and and all of that and i i found my dad's trains and, and brought them down and my trains as you know being a son and those toys just really potent <laughs> um mostly plastic objects that really kicked up a lot of stuff for me and uh yeah i would say I would say that would be representative of like a good example of 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 the you know abstract concepts we're talking about here
0: yeah I love that, and I love how it's like and the the object the inanimate object takes on a life of its own right because of what we attach to it right
2: it's so helpful to find those objects that you can ground your abstractions in uh, right. because they can be uh more realized for the reader right give them more of a chance to enter and
0: right so do you find that your experience now as a father has helped with the grieving and the loss of your own father a little bit
1: Mm,
2: yes for sure it's definitely made me feel a lot closer to my dad Mm -hmm. you know this is throughout the book but um probably my greatest lament is that I just never knew him as a man Mm. Um, And I never got to that point where we just really liked being with each other. Mm. We just liked each other. Yeah. We started to get there. And that's, that's probably my biggest regret.
0: Yeah. But now you have that opportunity with your own kids. Absolutely. What do you think about writing these stories and these memories also as a way for your kids to like learn and meet your dad since they never will.
2: Yes. Um, I would say that was never the first objective sure. in any of this, but it's undeniably, you know, something that is going to be passed down and hopefully, you know, other generations will, will read it after I'm gone and, and that's wonderful. And I have thought about my kids uh, reading this. Probably <laughs> when they're out of the house. <laughs>
0: um, so tell tell me a little bit about more about the book itself. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I believe it's a collection of essays. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Links. So
2: yeah, link collection of essays. Talk
0: about how the book itself came together for you, especially being a collection of essays, which sure. is different from trying to craft like a a manuscript full length narrative arc.
2: Right. Absolutely. There's two sections of the book. There's two parts of the book. And the first section really is looking back at my father and and those memories and uh, sort of seeking to understand him as much as one person can understand another. And the second part is uh, mostly about being a dad with my father resurfacing. You know a lot mm-hmm. in those pieces, and that that gave me some real structure for the book and it 's just trying to find those maddening moments as occasions for new understandings about our children and us, and sort of going beyond the common sort of surface level chit chat that we all have with each other and the you know the obvious struggles that all parents share and, and just trying to speak to the reader in a in a way that is uh genuine and authentic and in, in a voice that doesn't try to avert itself from the maddening stuff through um, any sort of distractive sure. tactics or anything sure. like that
0: so i'm always curious about the process of compiling an essay collection mm-hmm. because i'm i'm working on a book right now too which yeah. is a memoir and it's very much more a traditional kind of like full-length narrative so when you're thinking about an essay collection is it, okay, I'm going to write an essay collection and then you set out to write the essays that are going to all go together or do you write essays one at a time independently of each other and then over time you look back at your work and you say, oh, I have enough to make a collection. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, my answer is yes. <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> Both, yes. Um, <laughs> um You know, I think it's so uh, idiosyncratic to each project. yeah. Um, And there's a lot of great uh, essay collections I've read that are sort of um, organized uh, through, you know, themes um, and that sort of thing. For me, I organized it chronologically. Okay. Um, In essay collections or, you know, short story collections, a lot of times readers will just sort of poke around. And that's fine if, if people who pick up my book do that. But I... Intended for readers to to read it um, from beginning to end and there isn't there is a narrative arc I suppose Though um, any (laughs) any editors or besides the one that published my book or agents who I had any interaction with would say that (laughs) That it it didn't have that Um, (laughs) And that's what they wanted but um, but it's there
0: right well in the sense of a chronological ordering of the essays Uh I can see how the later ones would build on yes. the earlier ones, right. and yes. the earlier ones inform the later ones.
2: Absolutely, and they talk back and forth to <laughs> each other. Yeah. And one thing that was really nice, actually, in putting the collection together, was that I didn't have to reintroduce all the characters or the setting or the time. Um, I did, to a certain extent, because ages changed, and um, you know the persona to uh, to a certain point changed per piece. Uh, but it was nice not to feel like I had to do that for the reader right every time like you do when you're publishing something individually
0: right yeah so how long did it take you to put the collection together
2: oh man well I will um qualify what I'm about to say by saying that uh with this being my first book I really learned how to write while I was doing it Mm. um the longer answer has to do with that Mm -hmm. but the shorter answer is nine years wow yeah and so A great benefit of that was a lot of the earliest stuff that I had created when I was first starting the more experienced self-editor could sort of inject himself in that and uh, sort of rescue (laughs) some of the earlier work. Sure,
0: sure. When you when you started with the first piece nine Mm -hmm. years ago, did you know someday this is gonna be a book? I did. Okay.
2: I did. in the beginning, I was trying to convince myself that that was true, but it was always there. Yeah. yeah.
0: So for other writers who might be listening, mm-hmm. feeling like they're slogging away mm-hmm. and they're never going to get published or they're never going to yeah. have their book out there. Yeah. Nine years sounds like, I mean, it's almost a decade, right? <laughs>
2: if if um, the me now could talk to the me nine years ago. Yeah. The nine years ago me would be like, are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) I'm out. Why We can't do this. Um, But I have to say, I look at writing as a vocation and it is a passion and it is something that I both love and hate to do. It's something I have to do. But I would say for whatever project someone is working on, really has to become both the working on it and the working toward finding a home for it. It just has to be an obsession. Yeah. And... Of course, rejection always hurts, um, in varying degrees, (laughs) but I always found a way to allow it to motivate me. Um, always, um, like if someone turns something down, I would, depending on uh, how much I needed to, you know, give it some time and then, you know, try to honestly look at the piece as, as, as objectively as someone who wrote it can, Mm -hmm. um, I would just keep sending it out. It was definitely a blessing that um, there was a way to just kind of take the rejection and um, that, that so many writers experience and, and just sort of turn it into motivation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just sort of a, a relentless obsession to get this first one. And how much of there.
0: that obsession is about, okay, even if this doesn't find a home or an od- a larger audience, I'm still doing it because I need to do it.
2: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: like there's a story that i need to tell even if just one other person reads it
2: yeah and so many uh, well-intended kind editors and agents that i had some interactions with many interactions with said something politely that you know mostly book buyers are women and men don't read books and this is a book for men and so good luck (laughs) you know wow um but Men do read books, and yes. women buy books for men, yes. and um, I would like to think that this book is meaningful for you know most readers and that they can see a part of themselves in the pieces. But I, I hope men find it, I hope young men find it, um, because so many of us have such a hard time talking about our fathers and doing so in a, in a really honest way.
0: I think it's the perfect time for a book like this Jamie. There is so much happening in the larger social conversation around toxic mas- masculinity and how do we raise young people. Men, young boys to become strong, confident men who know how to treat women well yes. and who are okay with exploring their emotions yes. and being whoever they are, regardless of whether it's like the traditional tough guy, Absolutely. masculine image. However they
2: most authentically want to present themselves. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's the perfect time for a book like this. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thanks, Gina. <Gemma. laughs> I agree.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I say that completely Honestly, and just knowing that I have friends who are currently in the place of exploring that and being more public with that topic, and it's sure. so, so important.
2: It is so important. It is so important. And when I was younger, uh, and by that I mean late 20s, early 30s, and I felt so much like a son, but I was this adult with a mortgage and um, a spouse and, 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 a, and a child. I just thought that when people are older, they just sort of stop thinking of themselves uh as somebody's son or daughter but those relationships obviously are so archetypal and they're just always there and yeah resurfacing
0: and you always still sort of feel like a kid always yes <laughs> no matter how old you are <laughs> absolutely i mean i have the same thing happening where i'm i'm turning 40 this year okay and i feel like well, shit, I still feel <laughs> like the senior in high school, but how did I end up married for almost eight years with a mortgage? <laughs> yeah. I don't have kids, but I have right. nephews, and, like, the same thing. It's just, sure. like, we ha- we don't give ourselves the time to really process those changes, those no. life changes that are so significant.
2: Yes. I am somewhat newly in my 40s as well, and four zero is... Um, It's very different. (laughs) 40
0: 40 is the new 30.
2: (laughs) (laughs) 40 is, I don't know, it's different. When you're in your 30s, it's like, I'm 33, I'm 36, I'm 37. Who cares? You're in your 30s. But then four zeros, like, you know, you could start becoming a statistic of some kind.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like, okay, I guess this is the decade where I start to take life seriously. (laughs) Right,
2: right. I, um yeah uh, it's bizarre yeah i teach um teach high school at uh, fairfield prep it's a all boys jesuit high school and mm. the students that i taught in my late 20s and early 30s are now in their late 20s and early 30s and i'm you know connecting with them in, in small ways right uh, you know around the book and it's crazy just it does make you feel older
0: (laughs) (laughs) for sure for sure well I don't think we've said it yet so what's the title of your book
2: a line in the snow essays on a father's journey home
0: and where can people find it
2: everywhere books are sold awesome Uh, um, yeah
0: I can't wait to get my hands on a copy (laughs) (laughs) I hope you do yeah well um, before we wrap up tell the listeners where can they learn more about you and your work
2: Um, they can find me at jamesmchezbro.com and um, I'm on all the socials and they can find me there and I'd be happy to connect with them.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jamie, for taking time to chat today.
2: Thanks for having me, Jenna.
0: That was Jamie Chesbro. Visit Jamie online at jamesmchezbro.com or on Twitter and Instagram at jamie underscore Chesbro. Now, since this interview is more than two years old at this point, I asked Jamie if there were any updates that he'd like to share with listeners, and he emailed to let me know about a little bit of what's going on in his writing life. Jamie's been a high school teacher for more than 20 years, and his focus in his writing lately has been integrating his passion for teaching, specifically Jesuit education. And since our interview, Jamie has contributed several essays and reviews for America, the Jesuit Review. He says it's added a new dimension to his writing, and he wanted to add that writers shouldn't be afraid to allow their spiritual or religious practices to enter their creative nonfiction writing. If it's authentic and inclusionary in nature, just let it live on the page, Jamie says, especially if it organically emerges with the content. So, thanks, Jamie, for that additional insight. Find the links and info from today's episode in the show notes online at to the story If you're looking for a place to find more support with writing your true personal story, let me tell you about the More to the Story community. The More to the Story community is a free and safe space online for nonfiction authors to connect with each other, hone their craft, share their experiences, and make real progress on their projects. You'll connect with me and my team of editors, but you'll also connect with other writers just like you. Visit jannamarlise.com community for more info and to request to join. I hope you'll join me. I would love nothing more than to support your writing journey of telling your story without shame. Next time on More to the Story, I talk with Katie Standeffer, author of the debut memoir, Lightning Flowers, which came out in November 2020. We talk all about her writing process and specifically integrating scientific research with her personal story, which is a signature of her writing style. To subscribe to this podcast, go to iTunes.com slash More to the Story. While you're there, leave a review. I love feedback. I love hearing from you. And it helps other nonfiction writers just like you find the show. More to the Story is produced out of my home office in Sacramento, California. Special thanks to my husband, Jeremy Marin, who wrote and performed the theme song. You can visit us online at moretothestorypodcast.com. Follow Under the Gumtree on Instagram and Twitter at UnderGumtree. I'm Jana Marin. Just Jana on Twitter, Jana Marlise everywhere else. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon on the next episode of More to the Story. Tell me a story, tell
1: me true. I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out, and the night is so blue. Tell me a story, and I'll, I'll tell mine to you. Sitting on the balcony Drinking up our wine Talking about the way That we used to live our lives The words in the books Man, they're nothing but lines I look into your eyes And you look into mine You say Tell me a story Tell me true I want to know What happened to you? The stars are all out And the night is so blue Tell me a story And I'll tell mine to you